0: All right, good morning. If you have your Bibles this morning, you can turn to the book of Romans. We're in chapter 2, Romans chapter 2. We're going to read a lot of Scripture this morning. Uh, Many of those will, the text will actually be on the screen behind me, so you don't have to flip through all of these verses in your Bible if you don't want to. Some of them are lists of Scripture, and I'll at least have the references up on the screen for those of you who like to take notes, because there is a lot we're going to look at today. Romans chapter 2, we're going to begin with verse 6, and we'll read through verse 11. Romans chapter 2, verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Okay, so in today's passage we're continuing to talk, or Paul is actually continuing to talk about the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That's in verse 5 that we looked at last week. So he's continuing that theme. And as we've previously mentioned, that day of wrath, what we're talking about there is God's final judgment of sinful mankind. And we see this in Scripture in several places. Peter refers to it in Second Peter 3, 7 as the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Jude, in verse 6, calls it the judgment of the great day. Again, Paul, this time in 2 Timothy 4, verse 1, says that it is going to happen at the second coming of Jesus Christ, who he says will judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting in verse 7, Paul gets a little stronger with his language. He says, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in Revelation, the apostle John describes this day of judgment. In chapter 20, starting in verse 11, he says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's the Apostle John. You see, all of history is moving inexorably toward that awful day when all sinful men will, according to Hebrews 10.31, fall into the hands of Of the living God. In fact, the the phrase right before that, Hebrews ten thirty one, says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We see God offers Himself as a father to fallen mankind. He pleads with them to come to Him through salvation. In Second Peter chapter three, verse nine, we read that He does this not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the truth is that one day the opportunity for repentance will end. And at that time, God will execute his perfect judgment. Because of that, it's important for us to understand the truths from Romans chapter 2 that refer to this great judgment. So let's do that this morning. One of the principles that we've already covered but we should probably be reminded of is that God's judgment is according to truth. In verse 2 of chapter 2, it says, We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. It's right. On the basis of this principle alone, we find ourselves to be guilty. For God, who is the God of truth, declares that we ourselves do those things that we condemn others for doing, if you remember earlier in chapter 2. But another principle I think we need to understand, and that is what is in today's passage, is that God's judgment is according to our deeds. That's in verse 6. It says, "...He will render to each one according to his works." You see, we can't plead extenuating circumstances before God. He is going to look at what we've done. That's what counts, and this principle of being judged by our deeds is unfolded here in verses 6 through 11, and then later in verses 12 through 15, it's developed further, and we'll get to that in future sermons. But let's talk a little bit about these verses 6 through 11. You see, these verses speak of two distinct or two different paths. One is the path of good deeds, the end of which is glory and honor and peace and eternal life. The other is the path of evil the end of which is trouble or tribulation, distress, wrath, anger. These verses teach us, this is an important principle, that a person is on either one path or the other. I know last week we talked a bit about the proportionality of punishment. you remember? We looked at verse 5. It says, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. So each of us stores up different amounts of wrath. And we discuss that God's judgment will be proportionate to sin. You sin much, you'll be punished much. And, you know, we look around and we see that some people are better than others and some are worse. And so sort of in our fallen minds, without clear understanding of what God is doing, we reason that in the life to come, Some should be treated well and some should be treated badly and the difference is sort of relative. We even think, reasoning along these lines, we sort of conclude that our future existence in heaven or in hell or wherever you think you may be should be somewhat like our present existence. It will have a mixture of some good and some bad, sort of like the life you live now. But here in the text... That error is clearly refuted. According to these verses, the two paths are mutually exclusive. You are on one or you're on the other. And we'll talk more about that as we go through. So let's talk about this first path. That is the path of the person who does good. In our text here, Paul speaks of such people in two places. We start in verse 7 and then in verses 9 and 10. If we put those verses together, this is what we get. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he, this is God, will give eternal life. There will be glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. Okay, so there are two things that this person is described as doing. One, he is... Described as someone who does good. The verse says, well, doing, doing well, or doing good. And the second I think we can draw from this is that he persists in doing good. The verse uses the word patience, and that he patiently does good, he continues on in it. And then there are three things that I think are his motivation for doing this we have glory and honor and immortality as his motivation. I mean, elsewhere in Paul's writings, we see those three things, glory and honor and immortality, as describing the Christian's ultimate expectations. This is what the end of things will be for us. Glory doesn't mean what you might think it means. It means being transformed into the image of God's Son, step by step. And that glory will be reflected in us on that day perfectly. We think it means getting glory, getting praise. But what it means is the transformation of the believer into the image of God's Son. And by that, God's glory is reflected in us. And we see that in Scripture, in Romans chapter 5, verse 2. It says, Through him, We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Later in chapter 8, verse 18 For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In verse 30 of chapter 8 And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified. And to those whom he justified, he also glorified. In chapter 9, verse 23, In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. We are those vessels. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7, But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 43, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 12, since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And then finally, in 2 Corinthians 4, it says, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So our motivation for doing these works is this glory, this Transformation into the image of God's son. Honor, the next one, refers to God's approval of believers. And you can set that against the dishonor or disapproval of the world around us. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 7, it says, You made him a little lower uh, than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. Talking about Man. First Peter 1 Peter 1.7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This honor is part of our ultimate expectation from being a Christian. And the third motivation that he mentioned is immortality. And this refers to this resurrection of hope that we have as God's people. The Greek word is ophtharsia, and it can be translated not just as immortality, but as incorruptibility or genuineness. And so in the passages I'm about to read, which refer to this resurrection hope, it's often translated as imperishable. 1 Corinthians 15, 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead, what is sown is perishable. what is raised is imperishable. Immortal. First Corinthians 15:50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. And then finally in verses 52 through 54 of the same chapter, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Now, I know that's a lot of verses, and you hear the same words over and over again, perishable and imperishable. The thing to hold on to is that this is our resurrection hope in Christ Jesus, to be incorruptible, genuine, imperishable, immortal with him in heaven. And this is the motivation of those who do good. We look forward to this. One commentator writes that the three words here define aspiration in terms of the highest reaches of Christian hope. So we have the things they do, and then we have their motivation for it. And then we also have four things that God is said to dispense to these people as rewards for what they've done. The verse lists eternal life, glory, honor, and peace. So eternal life refers to salvation. That is, life in heaven with God rather than damnation, eternal life. We've heard that term many times. Of course, glory and honor are two of the goals we just discussed. So it means those things. We don't need to go over those again. But these things that were our motivation that we strive for are then our rewards in perfect form. The last term is peace. And in the verses, it sort of parallels the idea of immortality. So I don't believe that it means peace with God. We can have that now through the sacrifice of his son. When we accept Jesus Christ as Savior, we are justified by that. We have peace with God. I don't even think that it means the supernatural peace of God. You know, Scripture says in Philippians 4, 7, that it transcends all understanding But because it sort of parallels this idea of immortality, it is the peace of heaven. It is the place where we are finally delivered from sin and delivered from all of the conflicts that come from sin. It's peace with everyone. That is one of the rewards. But here comes the big question. Has anyone ever chosen this path by his or her own will and then walked along it by their own strength. Does anyone of himself or herself actually do good and persist in it apart from the gospel? So we've talked about these aspirations as being Christian aspirations, so it's a path walked by Christians. But the question I'm asking is whether any of us actually choose this path And then persist in it of ourselves. And by that I mean unaided by the Holy Spirit who turns us from sin to faith in Christ. Well, I hope by this time as we've gone thus far through Romans, you know that the answer to that is no. No one chooses to do good as God defines it. No one seeks glory and honor or immortality by the path of rigorous morality. In fact, we're going to see when we get to Paul's summation of the human condition later in Romans chapter 3, he says, none is righteous, no not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they've become worthless, no one does good, not even one. I mean, this first path, this path of doing good would be a wonderful option If anyone could actually walk along it, but none can and none do. Therefore, when God judges men and women by this accurate examination of their deeds, all will be condemned. It says in verse 11, for God shows no partiality. So let's go to the next path. Since this seems to be the path that everyone chooses That is, the way of sinners. This is the path that everyone naturally takes apart from the intervention of God. It is the way of destruction. And Paul speaks of it again in verses 8 and 9. And so when we put those verses together, we have, "...but those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil." The Jew first and also the Greek. So in these verses, there are also things that these people are said to do. First, it says they are self-seeking. Self-seeking. And this is the opposite of what we learn in the Bible is the greatest commandments. The first one, you know, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And then we know the second one is to love your neighbor as yourself. Those are from Matthew chapter 22. We also know that this sin of self-seeking is actually the sin of Satan himself who said in Isaiah fourteen fourteen, I will make myself like the most high. Self-seeking. The second thing they do is they do not obey the truth. So in the context of these early chapters of Romans that we've been going through, this refers to the rejection of this truth of God that's revealed in nature. We've talked about this a lot. And of course it would uh, refer to uh, the rejection of other truths revealed since then. The third thing it says that they do is this person does evil in verse 9. Now, in Romans chapter 1, near the end of that passage, we read a pretty exhaustive list of the evil that mankind does. It was quite discouraging to read through that list, but it was also very hard to deny because it seemed very accurate when you look at our culture. But that's not the only place that Paul speaks of that. Over in Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 13, it says, Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. These these people do evil. Next, it says that they obey unrighteousness in verse 8. Now, this could simply mean that they do evil, but it would be redundant to say that in light of the fact that verse 9 says they do evil. So here it probably refers to this continuing downward path of sin that we've discussed, that Paul has written previously in chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. So what are the results of these choices, these things that these people do? Well, again, there are four terms, wrath and fury, And tribulation or trouble and distress. Now, the first two and the last two closely parallel each other, and there's also a relationship between the first pair and the second pair. So, wrath and fury both concern God's fierce and absolute opposition to sin, to all evil. And then, tribulation and distress refer to the effect of God's judgment upon evildoers. The first two refer to God, the second two refer to us, what we will experience. And these words are frequently used of the sufferings of the wicked and the life to come. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 22 says, And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Zephaniah, a book we don't often look at, chapter 1, starting in verse 15, A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. And then in verse 17, it says, And I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind, because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like dung. This is what awaits the ungodly. Paul even talked about those who just think they're better than others. Remember? Those who looked at the things in the end of chapter 1 and thought they were better and was judging them. This applies to them as well. So we have these two paths. And many people, have, maybe even you, at first blush when you're reading through this, find this to be a very difficult passage Because it seems to be saying, does it not, that salvation is by good works. Do any of you get that vibe from reading these passages? If you do good and you persist in it, you'll be saved. And if you do evil, then you'll be lost. But this is not what Romans 2, verses 6 through 11 is teaching. No one is saved other than by the work of Jesus Christ, And by faith in him. I want to be clear on that. Nevertheless, it's significant that the apostle here, Paul, does speak of two paths. And he wants you to know that you can't call yourself a Christian. You cannot reach that goal of eternal life without actually being on the path of righteousness. So should we be surprised that he would say something like that? No, I don't think we should be surprised at all. In fact, it's taught many places in Scripture. Let's look at some of those. What about Psalm chapter 1? Starting in verse 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Verse 2, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Verse 4, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Now, if we were preaching on this, it would be easy to draw present-day implications from this. The dangers of hanging around the wrong people and the blessings of hanging around the right people. But these passages, just like the passage today from Paul, have eternal implications as well. Back to Psalm 1, verse 5, therefore... The wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Verse 6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Those are warnings regarding eternity. Later in Isaiah chapter 3, verse 10, it says, Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked! It shall be ill with him, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. Also in Jeremiah chapter 17, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Lest you think this is just Old Testament stuff and it doesn't apply anymore, we go to the New Testament. Matthew chapter 19, we see the words of Jesus himself. You remember when the rich young man came to him? Matthew 19, starting in verse 16. He said, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, what would you say if you were Jesus? Have faith in me, young man. Believe in the sacrifice that I'm going to make for you, and you'll be saved. But instead, Jesus told him to obey the commandments. The young man replied in verse 18, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you should not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you should not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said in verse 20, All of these I've kept. Again, instead of telling him to have faith in himself, in Jesus, Or even pointing out that he had not actually kept all of these commandments. Jesus merely brought to mind the one thing that the young man struggled with, his debilitating love of possessions. In verse 21, Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. unless you think that teaching was like an outlier and Jesus didn't teach that in other places, we have the introduction to the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's along the same lines. An expert in the law, a lawyer, questions Jesus by asking essentially the same question that the rich young ruler asked. In Luke chapter 10, verse 25, And behold, a lawyer stood up to to, uh, put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Again, Jesus could answer this with answers like faith. Instead, he pointed him to the law in verse 27, and he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And then the rest of the parable was given to show you who your neighbor is and to show you how to love him. Emphasis here is on the things you do. But the most striking and the most frightening words that Jesus spoke about these two paths are those that come from the last great sermon that he gave before his crucifixion. This was the sermon he preached on the Mount of Olives. It's recorded in Matthew chapter 23, excuse me, 25, I just want to read a portion of this to you. This starts in verse 31, Matthew chapter 25 verse 31. The Son of man comes in his glory, so this is the second coming, and all the angels with him. Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on the left. Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, I want to be clear. I don't want any of you to think that I'm substituting good works for faith as a means of salvation. I am not. I don't even want you to think that we're adding good works to faith, because if we even did that, not to mention substituting it entirely, if we even added it to faith as a grounds for salvation, then this becomes a false gospel. And it deserves the anathema that Paul pronounces on this kind of teaching. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, it says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. That was important enough for Paul to repeat it in back-to-back sentences. So we are not advocating for works as the basis of your salvation. But here's what we are teaching. The subjective criterion for salvation is faith alone with nothing added. But the objective reality is manifested in the works that will come after that salvation where the Holy Spirit leads us and empowers us to perform them for that reason. God is perfectly just in using works as the basis for his judgment. You see, salvation is achieved by Christ for all who are to be saved. And it becomes theirs by simple faith in him and his work on the cross. That's absolutely true, and that's the gospel we preach. But we must not mock God either. It's an equal error as Paul is describing to think that one can be saved by faith and then continue down the same path he was on before, doing no good works at all. A person doing that is not saved despite whatever profession he may make. Here's the wonder of the Christian gospel. On the one hand, it is utterly by grace, received through faith, and that faith itself is of grace, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. No one who is saved can boast of anything. We are saved on the sole grounds of Christ's death in our place. But at the same time and on the other hand, those who are saved by grace through faith are placed on this path of righteousness. And they do indeed perform good works. Good works that the world, the unbelieving world around them, can't even begin to dream of. You see, a person's actions form an infallible index to his character. It's what we do more so than what we say. I mean, Jesus taught this, he's taught it twice in the same sermon. This is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verse 16. You will recognize them by their fruits. This means the things they do. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? And then in verse 20, he repeats this thesis statement. You will recognize them by their fruits. That is why Jesus also said back in chapter 5, verse 20, For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The righteousness he's talking about there is good deeds. And he's teaching that the people of God will, if they are truly people of God, do good works, surpassing even the righteous but lost people of Christ's day. So that's a lot. So. How do we get on the right path? What do you do if you're on the wrong path? How do you get out of the company of the wicked from Psalms chapter 1? How do you get out of the company of those who are rejecting the truth of God and pursuing evil and storing up wrath for themselves and into the company of those who are doing good deeds and who seek glory and honor and immortality? Let me ask it in a more clear way if I can. What do you do if you're on a wrong path in order to get off the wrong path and onto a right path? Well, let me give you some hints. First, we have to recognize that we're on the wrong path. Nobody is ever going to get off the wrong path and onto the right one if they entertain some hope that this present road will eventually lead me to where I want to go, to... Whatever that may be, in this case, happiness or fulfillment or salvation in this life to come. If we never understand that the path we're on will not get us there, we're never going to take even the first small step toward being saved. You must begin by recognizing that you are on the wrong path and that the end of that path is destruction. Second thing, admit that the path itself will not change. Strangely, some travelers, they admit they're on the wrong road, but they think perhaps eventually this will take them back to where they want to go. Maybe there'll be a fork in the road or it'll circle back and the road itself will change to get them to their proper destination. And that doesn't happen, as you know, in the physical world as you're driving or in the spiritual world. The path of self-seeking always takes you further away from God and fulfillment and happiness It is the downward path we talked about in Romans 1 and it'll lead to the judgment and the wrath of God that we see here in chapter 2. So the third hint for you is that you need to turn around and face the opposite direction. This is the way of speaking of things the Bible refers to as repentance or conversion. Repentance just means to have a change of mind, to think differently that leads to acting differently. And convert, conversion literally means to turn around. And so you need to reject the way you're going and choose a different path entirely. The fourth hint for you this morning if you're on the wrong path is to commit yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in his death on the cross on your behalf. This is the fullest meaning of faith. And what I mean by that, it's not merely... Giving intellectual assent to truths that you know about Jesus or about God, but it involves a commitment to him as your personal Lord and savior. You must be able to say, you remember Thomas doubting Thomas after he saw Jesus after the resurrection? Do you remember his words? He said, "My Lord and my God," John chapter 20, verse 28. That has to be your attitude. There's something else I want to point out. If you've never done that, if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ and trusted Him as your Savior, you're on the wrong path now. So many times people see their life as I'm on a path and there's a why in front of me down the road somewhere and at that point I have to make a decision. I have plenty of time. I'm young. I have lots of time to get to that why and then I decide... Jesus or not Jesus? Friend, that's not the way it is. Scripture teaches if you haven't trusted Jesus, you're already on the wrong path. But in that instant that you turn and believe in Jesus, confess your sin, you'll find that you're already now on the right path. You don't have to seek out that right path because the first step in getting to it is believing Jesus, that's what the right path is. It's being where he is. And he starts with you at that very point. Therefore, as you step forward on that path, you begin to see those things that motivate the righteous that are on that path, the glory and the honor and the immortality. And you'll see the peace and glory and honor and eternal life that are promised But don't think for a minute that you have the luxury of just cruising down this road of life until you get to that why. No, you're already on the wrong path. Let me summarize. The works of a person's life are one of the unchanging bases upon which God will judge men. I mean, every one of us is going to face the divine judge who has a comprehensive record of all of our deeds. Nothing is hidden from him. And man's eternal destiny will be determined by that. But I want to restate one important truth again. The Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, teaches that judgment is based on our deeds. But nowhere in Scripture does it teach that salvation is based on our works. And that's the distinction we have to make this morning. God will save whom he will save, and his sovereign grace completely excludes works righteousness. You may think, well, how can you make that statement after everything you've preached up to this point? You can't just teach for 30 minutes about God's judgment being based on our works, and then say that it excludes our works because it's based on faith. Here's why I can say it. Verses like this, Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then in Philippians, Paul admonished the believers there, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my... Presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So, the principle we need to understand is the life that is saved by faith is to give evidence of that salvation by doing God's work. Outward godly works are the evidence of our inner faith. You see, salvation is not by works, but it will assuredly produce works the presence of these genuinely good deeds in a person's life over time reveal that he has, in fact, been saved. And so when God sees those works, it's a perfectly reliable indicator of saving faith. In the same way, the absence of those good deeds reveal the absence of salvation. And so in both cases, our deeds become a trustworthy basis for God's judgment. You see, in Romans chapter 2 here, God is not talking about the basis for salvation, but rather the basis for judgment. He doesn't begin discussing salvation until we get to chapter 3. So in today's passage, he's talking about deeds as one of the elements or principles that he uses in his judgment. He is discussing the evidence of salvation, not the basis for it, not the means of it. He is saying that if you are truly saved, there will be evidence of it in your life. And if you're not saved, there will be no such evidence. I mean, all of us fall short of God's perfect righteousness. And sometimes we fall into disobedience. But a life that is completely barren of righteous deeds can make no claim to being redeemed. I'm going to ask our praise team to come to the stage as I close with this. Christian this morning your justification is by faith alone and your rewards in heaven will be based on your deeds according to your works and if you're not a Christian this morning those same works and deeds will be the basis for your judgment and you will be found lacking your own righteousness will not do it Paul hasn't even gotten to the good news of the gospel yet He is seeking to bring this whole guilty world into the courtroom of God so that we'll stop giving excuses. So we'll shut our mouth and go to the gospel. While we wait for the good news here in Romans, we must tremble before the law of just and holy God. This morning, just like last week, we are presented with a choice. There are two paths. The question for you this morning is, which will you choose? And again, we're not talking about a fork in the road. You're already on one. The question is, is the path you're on the one on which you want your eternity to be determined? We're here to help you with that decision. The decision has to be yours. But there are people in this room who would love to answer any questions you have or clear up any confusion you may have. I'll be at the front. In just a moment, after this is finished, we have elders and deacons and teachers scattered throughout the auditorium. Let us help you. The choice is yours. Choose your path, choose wisely. Let's pray.